You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, this is Tanya Pinkins, and it is after the Super Bowl. I don't know when you'll be listening to this, but I'm just letting you know it's after the Super Bowl. You're listening to my podcast. You can't say that on the Broadway Podcast Network. My guest today is Kelly Gerard. And what did your mother say about the halftime show at my, the uh, Super my Bowl? My mother said... J-Lo looked good. It's about time that men realize the poll is not about their dick. <laughs> okay. Hey, that was the words of Martha Gerard, the woman who raised me and nine other children. Okay. <laughs> and what an introduction there from Kelly Gerard, who now you were giving us a, a background about the name because I was like, is it Gerard? Is it Gerard? And you were talking about the origins of the name and what happened with it. Tell us. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I don't know what happened with it because, well, between my dad's generation and my dad, excuse me, my grandpa's generation and my dad's generation, someone shortened it and anglicized it because it used to be G-I-R-O-U-A-R-D, which is the the Creole, the, the Cajun. Which uh, is pronounced for us? Gerard. Gerard. Yeah. Gerard. And, um, and for whatever reason, someone shortened it to G-I-R-O-D and then anglicized it, which just made it so much more difficult. Now, like, I feel like you could get away with that if you were up north, but in Louisiana... Everyone's last name is French. Everyone. <laughs> and we are undeniably a French heritage on both sides. Like, both my parents speak French. So I'm just like, I've, I haven't gotten around yet to asking who or why they did that. Because it just made it made it so much more difficult for us in school. Okay. It's like, Garod, Garot. It's like, no. Giraud. Giraud. <laughs> and you are Creole, like Jelly Roll Morton? I am. Yeah. So you said both your parents speak French. I, I, I got to get into that. Tell me, tell me, tell me. So were they jeunes de couleur, uh, quadroon, whatever? Uh, Come on, tell me. What's the story? It's <clears throat> Oh, my God. It's so confusing. Um, so on my father's side, we're of Cajun French descent. Okay. Now, the Cajuns are uh, descended from Nova Scotia. They were kicked out of Nova Scotia during the Grand Derangement. Um, some of them were uh, went to Haiti and stayed there. Some of them continued on their way to Louisiana and founded um, the Cajun or Acadian uh, settlements there. So if you if you're in Louisiana and you go start you're going out towards Lafayette, like let's say you're going towards Texas, uh, Lafayette, Arnaville, all those areas there are very um, Cajun population. Um, so those people were are, were white. They came from France went to uh, Nova Scotia, then uh, landed in Louisiana. My ancestors were the first uh, settlers um, to create the the settlement in St. Martinville, Louisiana. Okay. And if you go back to St. Martinville, all of the signs are still written in English and French. Oh, wow. Um, so on my father's side, my lineage is, is pretty much white until a certain point, and then someone... I mean, I have my whole history, but just to like shorten this, <laughs> like someone married a, 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 a Native American woman who was also of color. We even have, I think I've got an ancestor who was one of the um, soldiers of color who fought on the side of the Confederacy. Oh. Um, but they were free people of colors, and I think that they did own some slaves. They didn't own huge plantations. So yeah, when I learned that, it was a lot to deal with. Now, my mother's side... Mm totally different. They're of Creole French descent. And the Creoles, for the most part, are... It, it, de, it, the, the definition, it changes depending on what time period you're in, what part of the city you're in. It's crazy. But for the purposes of this, Creole really just means uh, French-speaking uh, black pe- people of mixed descent, black people of mixed descent. 
It means that in New Orleans, because New Orleans used to have some real yeah. defined, like every drop, you know, you was a quadroon, yes. you was an octoroon. I mean, yes, like- yes. And it could have depended on where you, um, where you lived. So if you lived in a certain section of New Orleans, you could have been Creole and it had nothing to do with your race. There were also white Creoles. And then there were people who were freed black people before this emancipation who did not want to, uh, be cons- didn't didn't want to ha- they didn't want to be aligned with people who were former former slaves so they called themselves creoles even though they may not have spoken french didn't have a but they called themselves creoles because it was like a racial hierarchy right oh so that's why you have so much um tension when it comes to people saying that they're creole i i, I feel like so a large part of my life was you say you're creole when people automatically think that you're negating your blackness, mm. but you know that's that's how we 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 learn to divide ourselves amongst each other. You wow. know, and it's like, and it never doesn't mean that for me. You know, I was I was raised in a very specific culture and uh, love my Cajun Creole heritage, but unde- am undeniably black and have always been black. Now, <laughs> so let's talk about how you are black and always been black, but you got a whole white half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's I, I, that interests me. You know, yesterday I had a, a guy I was talking to, and he, you know, looks like a white wasp, you know, patrician, but he's Jewish. And he talked about, you know, what it's like to, you know, people be treating you like you're one of them, and then you mention you're Jewish, and then, like, you are just gone. You're just gone. So for you, um, is there a, a way that you walk in the world where suddenly you're accepted and suddenly you're not? You know, I feel like it used to be that way. Um I think uh, the the more that I learned to because look when you because when you grow up in a space that confusing and race is confusing because it's because there is no uh, scientific basis to it it's anthropological we've been taught that uh, there's this mongoloid negroid Caucasoid bullshit it's not true right uh, humans are uh, I think somebody said something like humans mm. are more closely related than penguins like there's more species of penguins than there are right. something I'm probably saying and that the greatest wrong. genetic diversity between two humans exists on the continent of Africa between two Nigerians in fact as you move off the continent of Africa you become more genetically similar right yeah <laughs> you know but I you know um, there's this great podcast I listened to last year called Seeing Whiteness. And it's really about uh, ha- learning about our origins, especially in this country, about the different uh, race classifications that race was invented with the founding of our country. With Thomas Jefferson. we needed, oh, not, there, there needed to be a slave class. Well, there needed to be a justification for the existence of slavery in the land of the free and the home, you know, Amen. of the brave, whatever. They needed a justification, so they went to scientists and they asked them to come up with something. Yeah. And Hitler actually learned that from us. Eugenics was, was invented Amen. on our soil. Yes. And then Hitler imported yes. it. Yes. They just did it. They just, you know, <laughs> took it. They just took it all the way. Took it to the end <laughs> level, and, you know, we might be on the way there, too. <clears throat> yep. Well, there we are. And you could say that. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's, um, yeah, I, and, and I'm sure, you know, I know that we're going to get into the thing at the Atlantic Theater, but, uh, <laughs> because so much of mm. what the, the, um, invention of race reminds me of is that, like, you know, you can be having a very real human interaction with someone. And then this thing that you have, that you were, 
taught, sudden, something turns on in your brand and you're like, oh, wait a second, but that person is different from me. Mm. You know, it's like you saw that in Ebony's play, how like, you know. We're talking about Paris, which is at Atlantic's second stage by now, right now by Ebony Booth. Yeah. And and Tanya and I did the did the talk back uh, a couple weekends ago. Um, but that, you know, there's these spaces where you you relate to each other and you're able to comfort each other and relate to each other on a human level. And then that that thing that you're that just because you're you're born here and it's so difficult to to overcome uh, the, the, the things that you're you're taught um and in terms of, you know, what your what your value is because of the race that you are. Now, you know? No, you guys can't see Kelly, but she's this really beautiful woman. I can only see her eyes. She's got these big, mm-hmm. big Egyptian almond eyes, and she's got an oval face, and she's got wavy curly mm-hmm. hair, and you know, she's fair, fair, fair skinned. And she keeps coming to mind for me is the um, the book, The Wind Done Gone. Do you know the wind done gone? No. Wind done gone. I'm not going to get her her last name. Maybe Beatrice will tell me what the author's last name is. But it is the story of Gone with the Wind from the point of view of the blacks. Oh, right. Yes. I knew I had heard of this and I was like, I knew it was a Gone with the Wind. Yes. And yes. it is a series of letters by the sister of what? What's Alice Randolph wrote it, and the sister of the woman who's the lead woman who run who let ran Tara. What's that character? Scarlet. Oh, she, yeah. It's Scarlet's sister. But she is a little more, uh, has a little more melanin, Mm -hmm. you know, and a little more curl in her Mm -hmm. hair and a little more curve to her body. But other than that, the two of them look identical. Mm -hmm. And the man who marries Scarlett is actually in love with her sister. And there's this affair and competition between the two of them. And as I was looking at you, I was thinking... I could imagine the completely lacking of melanin version of you, you know, standing beside you and this man sort of getting his choice between these two women. I don't mean to offend or anything, but I was just thinking like, here's this really beautiful fair woman, but the curl in your hair would say, "Mm -mm, you know, we can't marry her. Oh, yeah, no, 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 for sure. In fact, like, it's, you know, I mean, it's not funny, except that, like, you know, you develop a sense of humor about these things growing up in the South, uh, a la Martha Gerard, my mom, who I quoted. Like, she is just effing hysterical. I mean, you want to hear her take on everything. Um, in fact, I keep telling her she should, like, do her own shit. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I have siblings. I mean, I've got nine siblings, and we all have different features. I've got siblings with blonde hair, green eyes. I've got siblings who are olive toned with auburn hair. I've got, you know, siblings who are, you know, brown skin, like we are everything. And I, and I had like, I actually, I wrote this poem because I would, I don't know. I was like, I feel like I was like trolling my brother, but, but cause he's, he's blonde and like, there's no way you would be able to tell he's black, except that I'd say, uh, I was like, you know, David, I said, one day you're going to get pulled over and the cop's going to be real nice to you, then he's going to see your roots, and you're going to get thrown <laughs> on the hood. <laughs> because, you know, it's like people are always checking for that, right? <laughs> wow, that's cool. I mean, I mean I, I'm going to have to see a picture when I'm done to see this whole family, because of you all walking down the street had to just be incredible. People must have just stopped just to see the group. Together, yeah, no, and my and my parents made us always sit in the front pew of our all white church every Sunday, impeccably dressed. Yes, you know, uh, 
and actually like some of that comes out in my my play the faith healer you know because we always have to be on our best behavior right we always have to be perfect get to dressed, represent the race you know so so yeah and now i can't even remember what I'm like, I feel like there was a point to this at some point. Oh, it was me looking at you. It was me sitting here looking at your beautiful face, and that's where that went to. So you are the founder of a theater festival that happens every year. This is in its 10th year? 11th. 11th year. It's in its 11th year, and it's called The Fire This Time. And why don't you explain the origin of that quote? I mean, it has many origins, I think it's it's both from a spiritual, a Negro spiritual and it's also and from Baldwin. So Baldwin. why don't you explain why you created this festival, The Fire, this time? Sure. I mean, <clears throat> very very simple thing. I created this festival because I came out of grad school at Columbia. I did my master's in playwriting at Columbia and did not have a community. I came out and I felt like I was healing, hearing about people like Marcus Gardley and Katori Hall and Pia Wilson and Rada Blank and all these people like 10 years ago that like, you know, I was hearing about all these people and I'm like, but where are, how do I have access to them? How can I, how do I get this community? And then also I'd had an experience where I feel like if you're a black artist or particularly a black writer, you, you are going to write that play that you think is the black with a capital B. So I had written that play, which was about, you know, um, uh, the, the trash gangs and American slavery, you know, the groups of women and how they socialized each other and stuff like that. And uh, so I had written that play, but then, but that was prior to me going to um, Columbia. Columbia. And then while I was at Columbia, I was like, I really wanted to explore my voice, you know, go figure. That's what you're supposed to do in grad school, right? So I had a an agent at William Morris who was, she was one of the biggest agents at the time. And she read my, my play Lessons of the Trash Gang and then she asked to see the rest of my work. So I sent her my work, which I thought was so much stronger than that play because that was pre-grad school. And she, and then she wrote back and said, oh, you know, we're not going to be able to represent you at this time. And oh. I knew, Tanya, I knew in my head that she could not wrap her mind around the fact that there was this very, there was this play that lived very specifically in the in a in the world of of slavery and our trauma with that. And then there was a play that dealt with a brother and a sister. And didn't really have, like, wasn't, you know, specifically connected to that. But, you know, as with all things, if you come from a certain culture or a certain experience, <clears throat> that's going to find its way in it. But it was more, but it was more nuanced. And it, it was more in the way that these, this brother and sister really had a codependency on each other. And, um, but I, but I knew I was going to have problems with that. And I, because my entire life, it was like, what are you? What are you? What? It was constantly putting in a box. And I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I was just like, because I, I was just like, I'm going to just do it on my own. So do you think that William Morris was looking for you to write more in the trash game yeah. voice? That was the voice they were looking yeah. for. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and I, to this day, my thesis play, I mean, I, the, work, the writing I'm doing now is much stronger than my thesis play, but my thesis play to me was much stronger and more interesting and closer to my authentic voice than that other play. Um, so I just said, you know what? I was like, this is going to be something that we're going to have to deal with. I got to create a space for my own work. And I said, and I bet you anything that there's other people who need that too. So I was interning at Horse Trade Theater at the time, and, uh, and, uh, which is on East 4th Street. And Erez Ziv is a prince of a human being. And thank God this industry has him. Because I said, hey, Erez, I have an idea for a festival. I said, I want to get a bunch of black playwrights together. And I want there to be no theme. I want the black playwrights to be able to write whatever the hell they want. So our motto 10 years ago was uh, any play written by a black playwright is a black expression, even if it's about two white people in love. And who were your first group of playwrights? 
Rada Blank, Pia Wilson, Katori Hall, Derek McFadder, Germano Toussaint, Deborah Asimwe, and me. Quite a group. Uh, Katori Hall and I represented on Broadway with Tina in a TV series, Pea Valley, and Rada Blank, the second woman ever to win the directing award at Sundance this yeah. year, which Sundance had three women winning directing awards this year. Yeah. To 2020 for 2019. Yeah. And Rada's playwriting is yes. absolutely amazing. Yes, I've read a couple of her plays. Um, so, yeah, so so literally, you know, a bunch of us got into a room. Eras was like, you guys can have the weekend, do whatever you want. And a bunch of us, I think that first meeting was, yeah, it was, it, it was actually, it was me, Marcus Gardley, Rada Blank, Germano, Derek, and we were all just, we had a safe space to just go off. And we were just like, you know what, like, we're so tired of being seen through the the lens of August Wilson or Amir Baraka or Lorraine Hansberry. Not that those, like, you know, we we love and respect them and we need them, but we also need the other stories. We need the sci-fi plays. We need the hipster plays. We need the punks. We need the, you know, now we have um, uh, so many plays now. That, this was our first year that we had... Um, a couple of cast member, members who were transgender and two plays about transgender experience. And um, so it's just like, it's the, the, it's like what I said, like our, our imagination is so vast as with anybody else. And, um, and we needed a space to exercise that, you know? And, uh, and so silly me, I thought, oh, it's, I'm going to do this for one year and then, you know, I'm going to be hit it big on Broadway <laughs> 11 years later. <laughs> Well, thank you that it's still going on 11 years later. Good. No, I mean, thank you all for the support. Like, it's funny time because I feel like I've, I've seen you in the audience. I've seen you've done re- our readings. I directed. You know, you directed. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, well, and, you know, we got to get your, your writing now yeah. to bring it full circle. Um, but it's one of those great things, too, where there's just a space to, to, um, to be flexible. Like, you know, you, uh, you know some of our producers want to try their hand at playwriting. We say, okay, submit. Some of our dramaturgs, our actors, <clears throat> like everyone, it's it's so fluid. And I, you know, uh, this, we had it was closing weekend, and we were kind of, you know, we were talking about what had happened at Atlantic at the talk. Well, back. we need to, we can't, we can't do that. We have to, we have to go back now. So mm-hmm. uh, this past, I don't know what date it is anymore. Dates, who cares? But um, Paris is at the Atlantic stage two, and hopefully this podcast will air before it closes, and you can see it. When does it close? Paris. Oh my God. Do you work That's at the Atlantic? Question. I don't. Oh, <laughs> I thought I looked online and I read that you were in charge of something at the Atlantic Theater. Oh, the talkback, but oh, I, just I, the talkback. So you don't have an ongoing position there. No, I just <clears throat> I've started doing a lot more stuff with them over the years. Like, got I, it. Yeah. I thought I was thinking that you were responsible for bringing that play into the world. At oh, because I was like, Theater. hold on, I'm missing a check in that case. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we saw Paris, and for me, what was interesting about Paris, um, as brought up by the audience, is that. The lead black woman was a passive character. She worked in a white space, which was like a warehouse of what could be an Amazon or a Walmart. And because she was in this white space, she was passive. And that excited me because I am personally in resistance against Aristotelian story structure. Mm-hmm. I think it is um, it is one of the drugs of the patriarchy, of the hierarchical systems that we send people out to go on the hero's journey and they get this pumped up feeling and then they have to go back and live their lives because most of us are not the heroes of our mm-hmm. own lives. Mm-hmm. And I was excited to see a story that was more about 
everyone rather than having to have someone be the initiator of everything that happened in their life. Because most of us, we're not. We're just responding and and, and doing a great job because if we stay on the planet in responding to the hardships that come our way, that in itself is heroic and victorious. Yes. Yeah. So we were, um, so, so, um, so after that, after the play, I was moderating the talk back and sorry, Tanya, do you want me to go into the story now? Because Um, we could, I mean, like someone from the audience mentioned this moment where the black character, um, said something about college and a white actor was like, you went to college yeah, and the black woman had to diminish. She was like, Oh, just for a year, just for a year, just for a year. And this issue of someone said about uh, why we as black women always have to diminish our accomplishments. Mm -hmm. And I spoke from my experience and said, well, that my experience has been that most white women of privilege have been raised that they are the prize. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and as the prize, there's nothing higher than them. Mm-hmm. And so when they come face to face with a person of color who is articulate, who is successful, who is uh, capable, who is attractive, it is an affront to their identity. And actually, Frederick Douglass said it better than I do. And before we end, I'm going to read Frederick Douglass's quote. But it is like an affront to their existence, their identity. It does not compute. They have to make that go away because that just like, uh, 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 mm-hmm. my identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then someone from the audience uh a white woman said, um, uh, please, could you repeat that? I didn't hear it. And I did repeat it because I thought she genuinely didn't hear it. Me too. Whereupon she and her friend got up. Now they were sitting near the exit, so they could have gotten up and left, but they chose to walk all the way across to the other side of the theater, down and, and walk in front of the entire audience to come in front of me and say into my face, I am not going to sit here and listen to talk like that, whereupon the people in the audience who could hear that went, therefore proving the point that was just made. Right, 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 yeah. (laughs) And, I mean, I was like, I was very rattled after that, you know, but I don't think that I realized how long of a lasting effect that had on me because even last weekend, this past weekend when we were closing the festival, you know, my, my producers and I were sitting in the office as, you know, the, the, the shows were finishing and we were just kind of like, you know, talking about the season and talking about like, you know, why we love this space so much. And so we, we, so then we spoke about that experience, you know, the experience at the Atlantic. And I was like, guys, I was like, you know what? I said, you know, we may be a small theater and it may be like our theater may not be as fancy as other people's theater. I said, but every year for two weeks in January, this is our shit. I don't have to ask anybody's permission or money or anything to do it. This is ours. Like, if you have ever been in a fire this time audience, it is black as hell. We sing between shows. If anybody wants to get up and sing, people bring their children. Somebody had their dog there Mm. the other day. I mean, it is is ours. Mm. And it's, it's never been about the plays being perfect. It's always been about the, the array of our, and diversity of our imagination and just having a damn place to relax. Mm. Like I know nobody's getting up in my face <laughs> at, at, in, at the fire this time. I know that's not going to happen. <clears throat> I mean, that did happen one year, but it happened out on the sidewalk <laughs> and I was seven months pregnant. So I was ready to go. My what happened? Th- what happened? Someone was pissed off because um, Aziza Barnes, who was also mm. gone to stardom, 
her play um, was addressing the 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 Bill Cosby allegation, you know, and um, and not in a not in a nice way. I mean, as it shouldn't have been. I mean, it's like he's a predator, and someone took offense to that and asked me after the plays, um, why did you allow something like that to be on the stage? I said, did you read what the what the what the the theme of the show is before you came? I says we don't put restrictions on our playwrights. And he said, and he proceeded to call me the N-word. Now, this was, this was another black person. Not that that makes a difference. Um, but he went, and I and my friends had to pull me back. Because, again, I was seven months pregnant. I was all up in my hormones. I wouldn't normally do that. You know, I would <laughs> deflect. But, um, but that's really been the only time that we've ever had an issue. Because, you know, I'm not depending on the New York Times reviews. I'm not depending on board members' money. I don't, it's, it's, it's about us. It's a freedom, mm. you know? Yeah. So. That is an amazing thing. So how do you keep it going? You know, I, you've, mm. we've become such a well-oiled machine at this point um, that uh, it it kind of produces itself in fantastic. a lot of ways. But I have a fantastic team. Caesar Williams, A.J. Muhammad, Julian Hairston. Again, Erez Ziv is a prince of a human being. I don't know why the, the the New York theater industry has not given this man a Lifetime Achievement Award. I, nearly everyone I know has gone through the Crane Theater at some point mm. in their career, and Erez Ziv mm. asks nothing in return. Mm. He is just an amazing human being. I mean, I if, if you are an artist and you want to try something out, go to Erez Ziv, ask him if you can have a weekend in the theater. He will likely give it to you. Wow. You know? I, I, the, 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 the power of someone saying yes to you, particularly when you're, <clears throat> like me coming out of grad school and someone saying, sure, have the theater for a weekend. Mm. And look what it did. And, and, you know, it's like it's not difficult to sustain itself because every year we get more submissions. Mm. I can only choose maximum eight playwrights a year. We went through 70 submissions this year. 70. Now, did the... Wait, I thought that the first year it started where the first playwrights had to pick the next playwright. Yeah, and that was wonderful. So our so mm. uh, so the structure used to be that the playwrights in the prior season chose chose a playwright, and that playwright would would automatically be in. And um, I think it was around maybe year five, six that we stopped doing that because we wanted to be able to open it up wider. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it was a it was a great thing. I mean, because I can tell you, every year on that stage, there are playwrights whose work I have never seen, that I've never heard. The submissions that come through are playwrights I've never seen. And I'm I'm looking at this stuff, Tanya, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I've got enough plays and playwrights in this season alone to program an entire season, no, two seasons of a of a of a theater, you know. But then that gets us to this conversation of what gets programmed in mainstream theater and my experience and I am certainly the beneficiary of this is that the shows that get done have to do with black people that they're comfortable having in the room yeah and you know I can often look at a group of people and I just because I've, I've had the benefit of having that privilege bestowed upon me, I can go, oh, that person there will be comfortable with, they won't be comfortable with you, so you're not getting in the room, and you're not getting in the room. With actors, playwrights, I, directors, I just can tell, like, they're comfortable to bring you to their house to have cocktails, and so you're going to get an opportunity, you know? And it's that thing, I don't know where I was talking about this, but th- that's what privilege is, that you can, 
arrange your world around being comfortable, whereas people with less privilege are uncomfortable all the time about something. And that is our launch pad for our brilliance is that we're uncomfortable and that doesn't stop us. Yeah, yeah. This is Tanya Pinkins, and you've been listening to part one of my conversation with founder of the Fire This Time Festival, Kelly Girard. Come back for part two of You Can't Say That on the Broadway Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.